Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome along to another episode of the Tennis Podcast and Australian Open Relived. This train is pulling into the 90s station, David. Yeah, I was born for this moment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you you quite literally were. (laughs) Yeah, you said um, uh, before we start every podcast, Catherine goes, right, everybody ready? And honestly, those were the words I was thinking. Born ready for this. <laughs> this is where, this is where we talk about stuff I can remember more than yesterday. We are doing 1995 today, and an incredibly significant match in the career, um, and in in the public perception of of Pete Sampras. Matt, were you alive at this moment? Afraid not. No, he's not alive. <laughs> uh, I was I was born after this moment. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm very happy to be here, but I'm also happy to you know sit back, take a back seat, wind David up, let him go, and just hear David talk about Pete Sampras. That's what that's what the people want. <laughs> Were you in Utero? No, not even that. N- not to go all the underpays on you, but I'm uh, I'm a few months away. No, quite a while away from being conceived. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. We'll we'll check in tomorrow on the status of Matt's conception. Um, other quickly in familial news. Uh, my dad is now busy incubating uh, Whitaker antibodies. So, update on the boat is that it will now be a uh, a guaranteed COVID free zone, or it certainly will be in in twelve weeks' time. Anyway, so something to bear in mind when we're considering uh, it's probably a new criteria for boatworthiness, I would mm. say. Yes. COVID antibodies. <laughs> Tennis Sangren, not aboard. Um, although, ironically, he does have antibodies, doesn't he? But unfortunately, yeah. not a good personality. So. Doesn't meet the other criteria. <laughs> no. Um, so that is that is it for anything current. Sit back, folks, close your eyes and allow David Law to take you back to 1995 and that year's Australian Open. We're going to set the scene for you for you first, um, particularly the, the Pete Sampras landscape 
coming into the Australian Open 1995. At this stage, he's a five-time Grand Slam champion. He's the defending champion at the Australian Open. Uh, Jim Courier had won the the two previous in 92 and 93 and then Pete Sampras had won it in 94. He's the number one seed and he had finished 93 and 1994 as the world number one. So he's an ex- he's okay only five five only five grand slams but he is he's on course at the moment to to become one of one of the greats was he already being talked about david as potentially one of the greats as uh, was the phrase greatest of all time coming up in tennis punditry at this stage in pete sampras's career yeah, I would say it was. And, and actually, the, th- the thing is, because we look through it with a lens of 17, 19, 20 Grand Slam singles titles these days, because of what Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena Williams have all done, five at the time was a heck of a lot. Bear in mind that uh, Roy Emerson held the record on 12. John McEnroe had retired with seven um, Bjorn Borg had retired with 11. You know, the, these were, this was the, the landscape. Pete was appro- basically in the peak of his career or approaching the peak of his career. He'd got five and it didn't really look like there were too many people that were going to stop him getting more. I, I guess he was going through a fantastic resurgence. He'd just won the US Open uh, towards the end of 94. Um, but still, Sampras and Agassi were head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and generally speaking, yeah, I mean, Sampras just looked unstoppable on his day. Before I set the scene for, for you all a little bit more repeat, Sampras, could we set the David Law scene, January 1995? Where is David Law? What's he I'm doing? What's he like? Yeah. I, I'm, well, I'm at university at, at, at Loughborough in my first year i'm staying in halls of residence i've got my walls papered with pictures of tennis players because i didn't work in tennis yet but i loved tennis and i wanted everybody i spoke to to know about it because nobody else seemed interested at the university so i just decided to put pictures of tennis players all over my walls pete sampras was current and center and right in everybody's face and nobody else nobody else i knew liked him nobody uh, and he was he was the two time defending Wimbledon champion, and everybody slagged him off that I knew at university because they said he was boring. There was too much of uh, when he won that Wimbledon title in '94, beating Goran Ivanovic. The Sun newspaper ran, ran the headline: Pete Sampras. Because he Which sent is everybody awful, to sleep. isn't it? It's horrible. It's horrible. There was a columnist called Steve Howard who's actually turns out and i've since found out is a brilliant writer and a brilliant columnist but he wrote the most awfully mean <laughs> column about pete sampras now dolly is um and uh, and i just vowed one day i would meet steve howard and have my say uh, i didn't really know how the media worked quite as much at that time and that, did that, that you ever happen please tell me that happened f- no it didn't didn't i never met him which is, is he still alive shame. Yeah, I think so. And and like I say, he's a, he's a cracking writer. But the world didn't like Pete Sampras. Certainly Britain didn't. They just found him boring. And of course, Agassi had won Wimbledon in 92. Then Sampras took over. And the, the contrast between the two could not have been more stark. One was popular. One wasn't in many ways, in, in most eyes. Um, but for me, Sampras was the man. And 
and I was I'd gone to university uh, I was doing all right I'd got through my wilderness years to actually have some sort of degree of success in my life of at least achieving getting to university and uh, and when this uh, Australian Open was going on I only had the sort of communal TV room at the hall residence to to watch any of it on and this match started I don't know sort of six in the morning I was there on my own in this massive TV room with one little TV and me and loads and loads of seats and I sat there for the next four and a half hours. Matt, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do do you know what uh, what your parents' view on on Pete Sampras was at the time? I know my parents, David, fitted uh, very much conformed to the uh, majority that you were railing against. They were not Pete Sampras fans at all. They they definitely would have enjoyed the Pete Sampras headline, <laughs> mm. or certainly agreed with its sentiment. I, I'm not sure about my parents at the time, but what I'm interested to come back to, perhaps at the end of this podcast, is to talk about whether this moment that we're going to cover today has had a lasting impact on people's perception of Pete Sampras. Because I, I have a, a theory that outside of tennis, it might not have done. I think a lot of people still look back on Sampras as a bit boring and as a dominant figure who didn't display exciting emotion on the court. And obviously we know that's not true because particularly this moment in his career, but has it had a lasting impact beyond tennis circles? I'm I'm not sure. For example, my parents might still think of Sampras as a bit boring. I think perhaps that is a UK thing because of what he did at Wimbledon so much, but... Yeah, it's it's a very interesting debate, I think. David's face is utterly crestfallen at the moment. Mm, it's a face that says 25 I... years of campaigning, all for nothing. He was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You'll have your say today, David. You can win them round. I will. 18 years after his <laughs> retirement, you, you can win them all round. Can I ask, uh, David... When I was when I look at Pete Sampras's career, something I find interesting is that he had this real breakthrough as a 19-year-old and won the U.S. Open. And I think I think at the time he was the youngest ever winner of the U.S. Open. He then had a couple of years where he didn't win another Slam, but he sort of remained in the top ten. Was there was there any sense of oh he was he was a one-off winning that slam. What's happened to him? Why can't he win another one? Or was it all just a sense of his time is going to come, eventually he's going to be a dominant champion? Uh, I think it was more a sense that his time of winning a, a major tournament at the US Open in 1990 came ahead of time, right. came too early. Uh, it was, And he even he described it as a couple of hot weeks. Mm. And to win that US Open, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Sampras, that... He actually beat Valanda at the 89 US Open, um, but to get to the, I think, getting to the quarterfinals. But it was that 90 US Open he beat in back to back matches um, Lendl, John McEnroe, and then Andre Agassi thrashed Agassi in the final when Agassi was the one who was getting all the headlines back then. That was a, a hugely exciting win in terms of showcasing his skill, but he was he was really young 
at the time and he wasn't refined his whole game wasn't ready yet I don't think and his mind certainly wasn't ready so it was a bit more like Federer winning against Sampras in 2001 but not winning a a Grand Slam title Mm. until 2003 it was more like that um, it came, it came, and then the, the following year, the, the story was that he then lost to Courier in a pretty underwhelming um, quarterfinal, I think it was, in 91. Um, and he said it feels like a, a huge ton of bricks. He even used the word, like a monkey's off my back. He said a ton of bricks has just been taken off my shoulders because I'm no longer the defending champion. And funny enough, he actually, I read some press tr- conference transcripts about that um this morning um and he said you know I, I regret saying that because i didn't really mean it like that i i sort of felt like at the time um maybe i will feel relieved to have no to no longer be the defending champion but actually i felt really down because i felt like i was playing well enough to, to defend that title so i think people got an impression of me because of what i said which wasn't really true, and I'd, I'd sort of set myself up for a fall there, and made myself look like I'm I'm sort of more because he got slammed by Jimmy Connors in the press for for daring to say that he wouldn't want to be the champion anymore, defending champion, um, and he said I I think people got the wrong idea of me, but and and over the next couple of years, very, quite very similar to Federer, he developed this insatiable desire to be the best, not to just play brilliant tennis and have a couple of wins. He he developed that obsessiveness about winning and being a champion, which I don't think people th- at that stage thought was in him. You know, there are some players that have got great skills, but you don't feel like they've got the heart or the guts or the stomach for it, really. Well, he kind of developed that obsessiveness, particularly off the back of the 92 US Open final that he lost to, to Stefan Edberg, a match he felt he should win, um, and he didn't. And, and, and it really stuck with him as, as being the moment that turned him into somebody who wanted to be an all-time great, really. Well, I had pretty much all of that on notes uh, in front of me, but it, it, it turns out who needs notes when you've got uh, <laughs> <laughs> the memory of David Law, who just reeled that all off. I mean, from the top honestly, of his my, head. my whole life at that stage was centered around tennis. And I didn't work in it. I didn't have anything to do with it whatsoever. But it's all I thought about. It's all I watched. It's all I talked about. It's all I read about. I lived every moment of that period, those few years. And him and Stefan Edberg became players that I really loved watching and Lendl the last stages of his career as well and I could I could reel off every result I just you know I, I would put everything aside to watch these matches no matter what it was this is so relatable this is this is why our <laughs> paths converge David <laughs> uh, but this was at a time David when you were a bit of an outlier um, because and this is from a, a Sports Illustrated article of uh, of 1994 um, entitled "The Sorry State of Tennis," um, and the subheadline is "Fans are bored, TV ratings are down, equipment sales are soft, and most pros seem to be prima donnas who don't care about anything but money. What can be done to save this sinking sport?" <clears throat> mm. Yeah, it was. It was. There was a. It was a difficult time for the sport, I think, because I think Agassi gave it an energy and gave it an in- impetus. But that article, which we which we read this morning from Sports Illustrated, I mean, the front cover of it is "Is Tennis Dying?" and that's 
May of 1994. So it's it's only six or eight months before this match that we're talking about today. Um, and Answer it, no, it, it's just living in David's uh, dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the truth is, I loved it, but you, you, I was fighting a losing battle with a lot of people because they looked at Courier and they looked at Sampras and they looked at a lot of these players and they couldn't relate to them. And they were remembering McEnroe and Borg and, and Lendl and, or more to the point, Connors, people that they regarded as exciting. And they just, these players were focused you they they didn't engage with the crowd it's really interesting seeing that article and and I've had conversations 15 years ago when when Jim Courier retired um about his memories of that time and he regrets enormously how he was on court because now we see him doing these on court interviews and he's he's a commentator who really kind of does his best to to get the sport across to people. And when he was world number one, he didn't do that at all. He just played his match. My job is to win, was his view. And I always remember him saying, you know, if you could only be world number one when you're 31 and not 21, because when he retired, he suddenly, it clicked. And he admits it. He said, you know, he, he started to do a bit of TV work. He said, if I was in charge, I would be getting all these players on chat shows and all. And I say, and I, why didn't you do it? And he said, I know, <laughs> I know, I didn't, but that, but I, but I should have done. And um, and that's uh, a shame. And that's what one of the elements of that that article, which is a fantastic read. Yeah, it really is a fantastic read. Just to pick out, um, I mean, it's a really long read as well. There's a a ten point plan for how to rescue <laughs> rescue tennis. Sally uh, Jenkins, wasn't it from yeah, Sports Illustrated? Yeah, yeah, really great read in the Sports Illustrated vault. But just to pick out a paragraph specifically about Pete Sampras and his his role, his perceived role in the death of tennis uh, everywhere except David Law's bedroom. Uh, She says, one player in particular who's suffered for his callowness is the 22-year-old Sampras. He's number one in the world, but has been received coolly by the public. If Sampras plays long enough, the public may discover that he's an engaging, shrewd young man. But he might have connected with more people already if he had spent more time interacting with his non-tennis playing peers. Sampras's existence thus far has been solitary. It's one regret I might have, says Sampras, of leaving high school. Going to school is part of growing up, of developing, going to parties, getting in a little trouble. All of that helps make you a broader person. He pauses. Also, I might have a good friend. You know, I don't really have a good friend. Yeah, it's quite sad, isn't it, to read that line? Um, but I think it's very accurate. Um, I think there's a lot in that article about how players start too early and don't get to grow up. Um, and and uh, and Federer, by contrast, although he started early, he, I got the feeling that he did get chance to grow up, make a few mistakes, and you know do some silly things and get in trouble, and but just be be a bit more normal. You know, Sampras, it stunted stunted him, really, I think, um, as a a human being, really. I I don't know about you, Matt, but when I read that, I I felt desperately sad. Really desperately sad. Mm. I think that's part of what makes the story we're covering today so Mm. poignant. Because, again, I, I read another quote saying... Yeah, he. One of the costs of being a tennis player is exactly that: not having some close friends. But there were maybe a couple of close friends who Sampras did have, 
One of them apparently was Vitus Gerolitis. He was quite close to him in in a sort of mental capacity, and uh, and he died in 1994. And then the other one mainly was. Tim Gullickson, who said, who's Sempress has said, I told Tim Gullickson things I've never told anyone. And he had this close friendship with him. And he was someone who, by the sound of things, really helped Sempress as a person and as a tennis player. I think he came on board in between that period of Sempress winning the US Open and winning his next slams. And from everything I've read, he really helped develop Sampras as a tennis player and, and sort of develop that winning strategy rather than just this exciting talent who could occasionally win, as David was talking about. Yeah, I think they, they started work, working together in 1992. I think uh, Sampras and Tim Gullickson were at the start of 1993. Um, he said, new coach Tim Gullickson, and this is from, uh, this is from an article uh, for ESPN by uh, Larry Schwartz, um, new coach Tim Gullickson showed Sampras the value of playing percentage tennis, going for smart, conservative shots rather than flashy, difficult ones. Um, and it was after Tim Gullickson came on board that Sampras reached world number one for the first time, went on to win Wimbledon, US Open, um, won his first, uh, third straight Grand Slam title and fourth overall at the 94 Australian Open, so the one uh, prior to the one that we're focusing on in this show, and followed up that with a, another title at Wimbledon where he beat uh, Goran Ivanovic and his plate. Um, and then at the 94 US Open, so the, the slam immediately prior to this Australian Open, he suffered a shock defeat in the fourth round to Jamie Izaga. Uh, Tell me Jaime, things about... Ha- oh. Jaime Eziger. Oh my gosh, okay. Isn't... <laughs> nice try. <laughs> he always comes up in the ATP media notes as the shortest player to reach the quarterfinals before Schwartzman or, some, or something like that. I, th- oh, I think he might yes. be the same same height. I've, That's why I know that name. I've only ever seen that name written down mm. because yeah, he, of he ATP was, media notes. Yeah. That's Fun the to watch. I think he had a single-handed backhand and... Yeah, I remember watching that match open-mouthed in shock and distressed that my favourite player was about to be beaten. <laughs> so Jaime Isiger. Isiger. Is he yeah. is he from Peru? Correct, yeah. Ooh. Really talented. Um so he he wins the World Tour Finals at the end of nineteen ninety four. So coming into Australia at the start of ninety five, Sampras didn't play a warm up tournament. Um, he cruised through his first three matches at that Australian Open. He had to come from two sets down to defeat Magnus Larsen, four six six seven, seven five six four six four in the last sixteen. How much of an anxious watch, David, was that for you? Do you remember watching that third round match? Yeah, I do. I do. I was in the same room, same TV <laughs> room, um, and we, you know the thing is with Larsen, he's the a big thing, guy. Things that room has seen. <laughs> he's a big guy Larson and he had the hammer of all hammer forehands and he, he was one of those that would take on Sampras at his own game just in power for power um and yeah when he went two sets to love up I was worried I was worried but Sampras just you know he, he was a lot more of a fighter than I think people realized and he j- but he also had this great focus and ability to just keep on believing in what he was doing um, and once he started the comeback, it, there was a feeling of inevitability about it. 
So he'd, he'd cruised through his first three matches, uh, but then suffers this wobble uh, in, in round number four, makes it through, and he goes into the quarterfinals against friend and rival, fellow American Jim Courier. Um, Sampras led their head-to-head at this stage 10-3, uh, between them, they'd won the last three Australian Opens, Courier 92, 93, and Sampras defending the title he won in, in 94. Um, there's also the very significant background on Tim Gullickson, Sampras's coach. Um, Gullickson at this stage had suffered several sieges while touring with Sampras in Europe in late 1994. This is this is also from a Sports Illustrated piece. He insisted on accompany, accompanying Sampras to the 1995 Australian Open. Gullickson became ill shortly after warming Sampras up for his third round match against uh, against Lars Jonsson of, of Sweden. Gullickson returned to the locker room where, according to observers, he turned pale and his breathing became laboured, his speech slurred, and his vision blurred. Gullickson was immediately taken to a private emergency hospital. Sampras, aware that Gullickson had been hospitalised, was a model of equilibrium and a straight-sets victory over Jonsson. Afterwards, he rushed to Gullickson's side, where he would spend much of the next few days. At one point, Gullickson requested a worst-case scenario from a physician. According to Sampras, quote, the worst case was not good. On the day that Sampras met Courier, Gullickson, stable enough to fly, left for the US for further tests. He checked into the University of Illinois at Chicago Medical Center. And in fact, in brackets, it says where doctors said that preliminary tests ended up showing his condition was not life-threatening. It was thoughts of the worst-case scenario that Sampras had carried onto the court against Jim Courier. Were you aware of, of that? background david going into this going into this quarterfinal i mean obviously you're aware of tim gullickson and and the significance of his role in sampras's career and life by this point but how how aware were the media and then by extension the viewers of that situation yeah it's it's one i've tried to remember it, it would have been reported uh, i'm sure um because it comes out in certainly in some of the commentary, not all of it, but some of it. Um, but I, I think I probably was aware that he'd had ill health and that he that he wasn't. I think maybe it had come out in the Larson match beforehand that he wasn't around or that he'd been taken ill and he wasn't. Therefore, he wasn't courtside because Paul Anacone was also part of the team and he kind of took the reins. So he loses the first two sets. To Jim Courier, he's. He, I I watched highlights of this match, and the highlights mostly focused on on the final final three sets for for very obvious reasons. But my impression was that Sampras didn't play really badly for those two sets. He wasn't having a stinker. He was just being being outplayed by yeah. by Jim Courier. Courier was excellent, and and bear in mind, I mean, you've you've said that Courier had won four slams, and Sampras had won five by this time, but. Up until that point, although it was a 10-3 head-to-head, Courier had won some of their big matches. He'd won that US Open quarterfinal. And really, it was the year before in the Australian Open when Sampras managed to beat Courier on a stinking hot day. And Courier used to be the man on the hot days. I couldn't believe that somebody was taking him out when it was that hot because he'd won the last two titles at Australia. 
And that's when Sampras had turned the, the rivalry around. Now, when they come into this match, Sampras is is heavily the favourite to, to, to win it. Um, but Courier played an absolutely exceptional match that day. Mm. I mean, we're not going to focus too much, are we, on, on the match and the tennis? But it was sensational. So, mm. so sensational. Their contrast of styles, the cat and mouse... The, the Jim Courier eliciting the best of the Sampras half volleys. The, the Sampras backhand half volley. I'd forgotten how how good a shot that was. And I, I so I enjoyed remembering. I think you've put it very well there. Saying he elicited the very best of him, it was a, a bit like what Andy Roddick at his very best would make Federer do if he was ser- having a good serving day. Or... Not to the same degree because Nadal has dominated that rivalry in the early stages, but he had a pattern, Nadal, that hurt Federer. And Courier's was the same direction, but with an inside-out forehand as opposed to a a left-handed hook cross-court forehand. But Courier would just camp in that backhand corner and hit forehands all day if he could. You know, one of my favourite commentators, Jerry Williams, um, the late Jerry Williams used to say the old frying pan forehand of Jim Courier <laughs> um, is out, you know, and doing damage. And, and I think we probably reduced Courier's ability down too much. He was a lot more talented than than people gave him credit for, but he was an incredible workhorse as well. And he would just grind Sampras into the ground unless Sampras stood up to him. And so on that day, I think Courier played exceptionally good, well and was just peppering the baseline and it was it was whether Sampras could find the answers or not. Mm. And he did in set number three. Um, he, he, I mean, his serve keeps him in it, right? Which I mean, it's it's a fantastic weapon to to get to fall back on. Um, and, and as you say, an underestimated grit in Pete Sampras because he's he's really hanging tough throughout that third set. Um, so he clinches that and then and then he fights back and levels it at two sets apiece. Do you remember do you remember what you were thinking going into the fifth, David? Well, I think the it was one of those that when Sampras played his best tennis, whether it was against Agassi or Courier, he would win because he was just he had more options he was too, so powerful yet he had touch and there's, there's a single game where he breaks and I can't remember if it was the third or the fourth set but he plays four successive points winning them all with different types of winners um, a, a, a forehand winner a, a, a backhand half volley drop shot winner oh. another feathered drop drop volley winner and then one of the signature shots of Pete Sampras stretched running out to his right, hitting a cross-court running forehand onto the line, clean winner. Um, and it's the sort of game of winners that we talk a lot about, Federer, from over the years. And Sampras had that. He had that ability to just hit heights that nobody else could because he could he could win all of... The, the points using their own games against them, whether it was a serve and volley like Edberg, whether it was a baseline like Courier, whatever it was, big server, he had all of their games in one. Um, and when she got to two sets all, yeah, I thought, okay, he just streaks away now. This is this is what he does. He goes and beats him. So the drama that would unfold in the fifth set is not something that anybody saw coming. Would it be 
fair to say, David, that Wimbledon was the place, the surface where Sampras's game was most effective. But watching him play on on a hard court, on this rebound ace court, that as we found out in the 1988 show, is kind of this neutral surface. His game looks so watchable and so just so transfixing because you see all the shots he's got. You see that he can rally from the back of the court. He can hit angles with his backhand. His Obviously, his serve is an incredible weapon, the way he sort of snaps his whole body into it. Um, I was really struck by his movement. He's a he's such a mm. such an underrated mover, I think. I think when you talk about good movers in tennis, you, or certainly I, think of defensive movement. But Sampras has got this incredible attacking movement. He always seems to be in the right place at the right time to, to hit the shot that he needs. He sort of floats around the court quite quietly, but he just, he gets in the perfect position and... He does it all mm. with this commanding, sort of quiet authority about him. I, I was, I loved watching this match, and I think most of the ma- most of the Sampras matches I've watched before were Wimbledon matches, where I haven't quite had that same impression of him as this complete, transfixing player to watch. Um, I was, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed his sort of athletic tennis in this match. Yeah, I felt the same watching it. I could imagine. The, the Wimbledon powers that be watching kind of hard court Sampras thinking, well, if we could if we make if we could make it the matches <laughs> a bit more like that, then you know. And what was maybe- happening was ninety four. Um, the, the problem at Wimbledon, and this is the reason why he had all these headlines and all these negative conversations around him because his matches would turn into serving contests mm. him and Goran Ivanovic and and whoever else the big servers were at the time Richard Krajicek etc and and I, I absolutely think you're right it, my favorite matches of the time were Pete Sampras returning serve against Andre Agassi because you've got Agassi who's going to camp on that baseline and he's going to hit all these shots and Sampras is going to take him on from the baseline, try to get to the net and finish. And yet you've got the best lobber and passing shot artist in the world up against him. And those matches, and Korea had some of that too. Those are the best matches to watch. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. 
Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So, it's two sets apiece. Sampras, uh, an hour, two hours previous, had, had looked to be down and out. We're headed into a, a fifth and deciding set. It feels like a, a fantastically entertaining but but normal match between these two at this point. And then, and then Sampras, and it's not clear straight away because cause he did a lot of that putting his putting his arm up to up to his head to to wipe off the sweat. Uh, he does that a few times before going to serve and sort of takes a moment and, and heads to the back of the court to, to compose himself for a second. But obviously with the benefit of hindsight, not all commentators cottoned on to this straight away or even particularly quickly. Um, it becomes clear that he's not just crying, but but weeping he he is he is uncontrollably weeping on the court and playing through it and and we're not talking about a moment and a wobble after which he composes himself we're talking about sustained weeping which continues through changes of ends where he puts the the towel on his head and 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 after it is it is an extraordinary sight to behold and unsurprisingly it is one that Mary Carrillo remembers vividly. She was there for it. She was commentating on it for ESPN. And this is her take on it. I don't think anything really bad had ever happened to Pete Sampras before he saw Tim um, in such distress. And uh, the night before, and Pete was having a hard time, by the way. I mean, he had he had, had a couple of five-setters before he played the five-setter against Jim. And Magnus Larson was up two sets against him before he came back. So the night before Tim and his twin Tom left for Chicago, um, there was a dinner. And here Jim Currier is playing Pete Sampras the next day in the quarterfinals. But he came to the, the dinner. Jim was there with Pete and Tom and Paul Anacone and Todd Martin and a bunch of other people. That is how loved Tim Gullickson was. Um, Jim wanted to be there too. Um, so they played the next day. And I was calling that match with Fred Stolle and Cliff Drysdale for ESPN. And he lost the first couple of sets in tie breaks. And then he started making his comeback. And as he was about to win the fourth set, I talked to my producer and said, if this goes five, I want to go down I wanted to go down to Pete Sampras's box. Um, I had known like everybody sitting in that box and I figured I wanted to find out from them how, how they were doing and how they thought Pete was doing. So he released me at the end of the fourth set. I go down into Sampras's box 
And there was a guy named Norm. He he was a Ray-Ban guy. He's, a lot of people had Ray-Ban contracts back then, Sabatini and Agassi and a whole bunch of people. Norm and his wife were sitting there, and at one love in the fifth set, Pete started crying. I mean, weeping, weeping. It had all collapsed on him, obviously. And, and Norm's wife said to me, somebody in the, in the crowd yelled, come on, Pete, do it for Tim. Now, Tim, uh, Pete maintains that that was just a coincidence, that that's when he started crying. Um, he said he didn't hear that. Um, but certainly the people in his box heard it. And now he's trying to serve through tears. He's trying to ace his way <laughs> through tears. And he kept, he, he needed to keep wiping off his eyes on the sleeves of his shirt. And it was Pete, it, nobody in Australia had ever seen Pete samples like that. The guy was like this Greek stoic. Um, so anyway, it, Jim Courier tried to, when he tells it, he says, I'm just trying to help him out. You know, in the second game of the fifth set, you know, Jim said, are you all right, Pete? We could do this tomorrow. Pete took it badly. Pete took it not how it was intended. And he said, again, I go back to Steve Flink's terrific book. Pete explained to Steve that everyone started laughing and that's what bothered him. You know, they heard Jim and there was laughter. And Pete said, that's what kind of snapped him out of his grief. And he started playing better. And Jim's effort to comfort Pete turned out to be a bad thing for Jim because Pete figured out a way to win that match. Um, It was something to see. It was. And then uh, both both, uh, Jim Currier and Pete Sampras after the match, it was a long five-setter. And it was a hot night and Pete didn't do well in the heat. You know, that wasn't his favorite kind of conditions for a big match. And afterwards they were both in the locker room, side by side on massage tables, cramping and talking to each other. <laughs> so I hung around for the press conference. Cause I, I, I genuinely liked Pete and I wanted to see how he was doing because now he's in the semis and he's got to play Michael Chang who on any day is going to be a workout, you know? So he got asked a couple of questions and he was still all jammed up. So, but of course that didn't stop me from saying to him, you know, uh, so after a match like that, is there anybody you'd rather face than Michael Chang? (laughs) Pete looked at me and then he just, he clunked his head on the press room table (laughs) by way of answer. Uh, it was it was kind of funny and anyway the press conference broke up i think right after that question and answer and then pete beat chen uh in the semis and then andre agassi got him in the final i mean agassi was great on that stuff and great at that time of the year coming off a big training block um but then tim died the following spring and uh as i said i think it was pete sampras's first truly big loss that that night was something and as you say it wasn't just the first time australia had seen that side of pete sampras i think it was the first time anybody outside of his maybe even his own group had seen it because i was a big fan of pete sampras i followed his matches i watched them all i 
cheered for him and I argued with with people who would do it would didn't like him he was boring he all he did was win he'd got no emotion and then suddenly right laid bare before the world's eyes was this guy yeah I think you're right David and the thing is the fans knew the story the press knew the story um it was well known that Tim Gullickson had to leave that that Tim Gullickson was seriously ill so yeah I think that made people appreciate Pete even more but I have to tell you the truth um David and Catherine I never thought Pete was celebrated enough at Wimbledon because you're right he won it so many times and the headlines the day after he would win his fifth or sixth or seventh that they had said they wanted fire you know they wanted more histrionics and Pete was willing to give but he'd never uh, until that night all we'd seen from him was his great strength and power and grace you know I loved how he used to win matches I loved how he put both arms up in the air at the same time, didn't say anything, didn't roll around on the ground, didn't jump for joy. You know, it's just this great, he looked like a Greek statue, you know, a Greek victory statue. And he'd just hold his arms up for a moment or two, and then he'd make his way to the net, and then that was it. And and I just thought that was so classy of him, you know. But to see that big beating heart of Pete's was... Very revealing. And and I have to tell you that when Vitas Carolinas died, who's great friend and a guy who had done some coaching with Pete as well, that was another huge hit that, that Pete Sampras took. And that was a that was a very difficult time for him as well. I mean the guy is uh he played otherworldly tennis, but he was very human, we found out that night. Hmm. I find it very interesting that you say that you knew him pretty well and that you liked him. Now you've, what, what did you like about him? Again, I, I thought I liked that. First of all, he was a great athlete. I mean, he just, I loved his serve. The, the, I mean, those great loose arms and that perfect motion. I would still put his serve up against anybody's and, uh, I, I loved his running forehand. I loved, but more than anything, I liked his comportment on the court. Um, he was all business. You know, he never tried to get under, in, under anyone's skin. Um, he trusted his game. He worked so hard. You know, he, it meant a lot to him. He really wanted to finish the year end at number one for six straight years. And by then, you know, he was older and the season was long and he was living in Florida because that's where all of his training was. That's where his coaching was. But he really missed California. He really wanted to be back home with his family and his friends there. But he stuck it out in Florida. You know, he, he just he knew that that's where he had to be um, to get the most out of him and his game. And I really admired that about him. You know, there was just a. I, I when he finished, when he won his 14th major uh, at the U.S. Open, and just walked away. Uh, I think he really felt like that was going to hold for a while. And then <laughs> Sampras came along and the dog came along and Djokovic came along. And within 10 years, he, his 14 majors was in dire straits, you know. But I just think that because he was quiet, uh, just quietly elegant people, people may have misunderstood that you know they wanted maybe they wanted more i don't remember that anyone wanted more out of bjorn borg i think he was you know 
he was this, he was this cool rock star looking Swedish guy, and that was enough for them. You know, I think I think Pete. I I just love him, and I have to tell you, if I had to go out to dinner, we used to do this a bunch of us in press. We would say, you know, we would, ha- and I would, I would be waxing eloquent, eloquently about Pete and why he was so great, and and then people, the Agassiz people, would give me Agassiz, who I also had great admiration for, and I would say, yeah, but Pete, but Pete, I did a lot of that, and then and then finally there was a, a great woman writer named Robin Finn who wrote for the New York Times, one of my one of my best friends, and she and Sally Jenkins were on the Agassiz side, and finally at the end of the night, they're looking at me. And and Robin Finn said, "Yeah, but who'd you rather have dinner with?" <laughs> like, oh wait a minute, that's what we're going by. <laughs> I didn't know we were talking about who was going to be more fun, you know, over linguine and clams. I, that's not what I was thinking. So, <laughs> you know, Agassi, you know, you could flip open your notebook, and Andre Agassi was going to fill up your pages for you. With Pete, you might have had to work a little bit harder. But I always felt that that was worth the effort. And uh, speaking of uh, Robin Finn and, and Sally Jenkins, um, some some lines from them in their their write-ups of this match, their takes on those, those tears from Pete Sampras. Robin Finn in the New York Times described it as tortured passion play masquerading as a quarterfinal match. She said the traditionally stoic Sampras was overcome by sobs. And Sally Jenkins in Sports Illustrated said Sampras won the match and the sympathy of the world. Sampras's casual demeanor will never again be mistaken for lack of feeling. Um, and uh, the, there's, there's, a bunch of, there's a bunch of quotes. Sampras saying, I started thinking about Tim and I just broke down. Um, and interesting in particular, Mary's take on the, what's always been perceived as kind of the two critical moments um, in in that episode. One, the, the supposed trigger of someone in the crowd shouting, do it for your coach, Pete. And two, the supposed reverse trigger of Jim Courier shouting, you're right, Pete, we can do this again tomorrow. And and Mary's Mary's reading of, of of both those two things differs, I think, from the accepted accepted narrative. Yeah, in hindsight, certainly. I mean, Mary talked about Steve Flink's book Greatness Revisited, which uh, which he wrote um, last year, late last year, about Pete Sampras, extended interviews with Pete and with Jim Courier and all the major figures of, of Pete Sampras's career. And I mean, it is just the definitive insight into Pete Sampras by by one of the game's great historians I do recommend reading that and I I bought a copy of it and I read it and and Mary's all these years on is reading this and has realized that as we all now know that Pete Sampras is saying that that he he didn't hear those those words do it for your coach um it wasn't aware of them it doesn't mean they weren't spoken but I found the ESPN coverage uh, this morning watched it and Mary clocks on immediately what's going on that he's crying you know there there are other commentaries that i've seen where they they speculate about whether he's injured whether he's got some sort of issue with his eyes and you know i must admit 
now that I've heard that I've uh, and the backstory, I, I, I would have gone in knowing about this story of Tim Gullickson. I would have read about it because I remember thinking instantly the moment that he started crying that that's what it was, that it was emotion. You can, you can see it in hindsight, I think, obviously very easily, but I felt it at the time. And um, I, I would say that it was one of the most moving moments I've seen in sport because it didn't come after a match it didn't come in a moment of celebration or defeat it came right in the heart of battle from somebody who we had never seen emotion from of any kind this was not Roger Federer who had cried lifting his first Wimbledon trophy or um, Andy Murray who we'd seen cry a, a couple of times in defeat we had never seen anything from Pete Sampras not a flicker that I could recall Yes, obviously celebrating a victory, but I always felt to some degree probably he was a, a little emotionally stunted because of his of all the reasons that you, you outlined in that, that piece of this t- callow 22-year-old who'd never really had a normal upbringing. Um, but in this moment, he'd had his first really difficult moment of what would be grief and it came spilling out on that cord in that moment. And to see him sobbing there with 15,000 people not knowing what's going on um, and millions around the world seeing this this exposed human being fighting the emotion so that he could still perform and just grabbing the balls with tears streaming down his face and hitting aces and half-volley pickups and playing out of his mind is one of the most impactful searing moments in my memory um and yeah i mean i came out of that match in sort of as a fan of his in celebration but in some shock and desperate for everybody that had doubted that he had something to him to see it i was the only one in the room you know i was still the only one in the room at the end of the match and i wanted you know i i I said i hadn't really got anybody there that was interested in tennis i had i'd got a great friend called alex who i'm still friends with today who who I, who I came through university with, and he was a massive tennis fan. But he couldn't stand Pete Sampras. And we would have these rows in the pub, me and him, and he's a dear friend of mine, but he would not have it. And then this is the moment that I think at least made him realise, you know, like most people in the world who at least watched it, you could you cannot watch that and not feel for him in those moments. Um and it and it wasn't you know it wouldn't have a happy ending you know it was uh, Pete Sampras beat Michael Chang he played Andre Agassi in the final he was I mean Agassi was fantastic that year and he was and he was he might he might have beaten Pete even if Sampras was fully charged but Sampras was just so emotionally and and physically spent really by the time he got to the final that that after the first two sets it wasn't that competitive and then. Sampras won other big titles. I remember when he won the US Open later that year and he turned the tables and he beat Agassi in the US Open final. There's a moment, that, and Steve Flink references that in his book, that he, he looks at the camera in victory. When he sits on his seat, he looks at the camera, which is close up on him, and he says into the camera, uh, I'll see you in a couple of days, Tim, and references playing that I'm going to take some money off you on the golf course. And, and, and then he tears up again, just very quietly. You just see that. Uh, and that would have been September, 1995. Um, and in 1996, Tim Gullickson died 
uh, in the spring of that year. Um, and off the that was the one year, of course, when in his run of seven Wimbledons, it was interrupted. He didn't win Wimbledon that year, 96, uh, beaten by Richard Krejcik. But he had his very best run in the French Open, got to the semi-finals, beat Courier, who was obviously the the man on, on, on clay. He beat Sergi Bagheri. He beat Sergi Bagheri and Courier over five sets who had won the last four French Opens between them. And he beat them both. So I did think this is... He was carried, I think, by the emotion of thinking about Tim Gullickson, who had recently passed away, and eventually he ran out of gas in the semis, and he was beaten by Yevgeny Kafelnikov. But um, yeah, he was always my favourite player uh, in in the mid nineties, and um, you know, and that that moment is just one I will never forget. How did you feel watching it, Matt? It's it's without doubt one of the most extraordinary passages of sport I've ever seen. I think I expected it to feel inappropriate almost watching it as though we're bearing witness to this intimate moment of of a great champion as David said being exposed and yet maybe maybe it's in hindsight but I think the actual act of seeing Pete Sampras play through that and be defiant through that and hit aces makes it equally a quite an inspiring watch um it's sad but it, it it's quite inspiring I, I it made me think a little bit of that that video package that the ATP and the WTA put together a few weeks ago now talking about tennis using the language of life and tennis with its rhythms kind of reflecting life and i think that that idea has never been more on display than in than in those seven or eight minutes where Sampras is serving through his tears because you know in, in tennis just as in life you there were there are these kind of pauses but you have to pick yourself up again and again summon yourself gather yourself and to watch Sampras do that point after point is is an extraordinary feat. Um, you can't you can't be subbed off. You can't sort of hide among your teammates. He is out there alone, having to play world class tennis while he's sobbing and weeping, sort of uncontrollably. And yet he does manage to control his tennis. It's it's extraordinary. I, I don't know how he did it. And um, yeah, so I was left with this conflicted feeling of it both being really sad and really, you know, gut-wrenching and yet at the same time inspiring. Mm. I obviously, I, I, I knew of that chapter. Um, I'd heard David talk about it. I think I'd maybe seen a clip of it um, before. Um, I, I think my my parents and my family were into tennis at that time, but it was it was when I was too young and and it, before I before I got into it at all, I was in the oh my god, tennis is just this thing that I'm subjected to all the time in my family um, phase. Um, so watching watching the full passage of of play during which Sampras is 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 weeping is really quite arresting to watch. I had no idea how prolonged it was. And I feel like there's this moment where he just sort of gives into it 
and succumbs, kind of accepts this is uncontrollable. Um, he looks kind of confused by it at the start. And he's obviously, you know, he takes a moment to go to the back and he's wiping at his eyes and um, takes his time before ser- serving. But then I've, I've, I do, it looks like there's a moment where he sort of accepts this isn't, this isn't going to stop. This is out of my, out of my hands. And kind of as Mary summed up, he's, he's a guy that's not used to things being out of his hands and, and out of his control. And he's not used to emotion that powerful. And to see that, to see that surrender in him is is really something. And then to see it reversed as quickly as it is by that comment from, from Jim Courier, which I think was well-intentioned. It, it just, with the benefit of hindsight, does look a bit misjudged. But I think it's entirely possible that he didn't quite understand what was going going on at the other end of the court look he he absolutely knew about Tim Gullickson more so than any of the observers would have known about Tim Gullickson but that doesn't mean that he necessarily had the emotional in- intelligence or awareness in that moment of battle to really be in tune with with what Pete Sampras was going to, going through especially as you know he's friends with Pete Sampras and and you know, we all knew him to be this kind of emotionless type robotic person, but he knew that kind of better than anyone, more intimately than anyone. So it's possible that he was, I don't know. I, I mean, I have a, it, it does, it does look misjudged in reflection, well, I mean, the, that comment. Well, the problem but, was the crowd laughed and I don't think he intended the crowd to laugh mm. Uh, as such you know i think he wanted to lighten the moment but he didn't you know the when it when the crowd laughed sampras thought they were laughing at him uh and and that everybody was laughing at him which is unfortunate and if you're somebody that's uncomfortable with um public displays of emotion anyway can you imagine how how exposing that that must feel to to not only have yourself laid bare so publicly like never before but then to experience to experience that kind of reaction um yeah i can't imagine yeah i think the other thing is that courier was down the other end of the court and i think it's easy to overlook the fact that physically he was suffering and they both were and courier says in steve flink's book that he was cramping throughout that fifth set um and he may just have misunderstood what was going on down the other end of the court i mean he does talk about wanting to lighten the moment um and the crowd laughing just sort of caused the issue for sampras but Korea was struggling physically and you do hear him on the espn coverage say i'm not doing so damn good myself after having said we can do this tomorrow and I think he was trying to engage the crowd and and deal with this awkward, difficult moment as as best he could. I don't think he was trying to be mischievous or anything like that. Um, but it served to absolutely clear Sampras's senses. The emotion passed with the moment that that laughter came, and suddenly he was there and ready to do battle again. And you saw Sampras was just awesome after that point. He was impregnable. Mm. Which I think leaves us only to discuss the 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 topic that Matt raised at the start, which is I can imagine in that moment it felt like it would change 
public perception of Pete Sampras forevermore. It would turn it on its head. It would it would reveal the one thing about Pete Sampras that everyone's been yearning for, yearning to see from him. And may, maybe it did and maybe it has to an extent. I, I question outside of real David Law-esque tennis people whether it has had a, a lasting impact on how he's perceived. Now, that is that is from a small sample size, that interpretation that is largely Rosalind and David Whittaker. <laughs> <laughs> Who it's possible, I have to say, you know, still in the mid-90s, I'm not, I'm not sure how much of the Australian Open they'd have seen or been aware of, no. even as tennis fans. You know, tennis was still mostly Wimbledon. Yeah, and and the U.S. Open, and I and I think that the the images of the year before of Pete Sampras winning this bore fest of a serving competition with Goran Ivanovic had been splashed all over the newspapers and people slamming it and saying how dull it was. Those were the enduring images, and this moment happens, I guess, in the middle of the night for a lot of people. Certainly in America, um, there's. Later that year, I think it was that year that that the US won the Davis Cup and we've been seeing this clip of match point with Sampras playing in Russia against um, Andrei Chesnikov and, and winning this incredible epic rally in this incredible epic match. Uh, the, and then on just the cramping. slowest clay you can imagine. Yeah, and just cramping immediately and just having to be physically carried off the court uh, following match point so he's he's won the davis cup with, with his teammates but he's effectively won the davis cup for the united states and chris clary who was who was one of the ones that brought us it brought it to our attention uh, on twitter he was there covering it for what would have been the international herald tribune and, and the new york times and he he said it's just such a shame that so few people know about that match and know about that victory and all that effort that Sampras put in and I think and I mean look after that he missed a few Davis Cup years because A he'd won it and B nobody made a fuss about it it wasn't like the Ryder Cup you know and I think quite a lot of Sampras's moments where you might turn public opinion in your favor just happened when there weren't enough eyeballs on it and it wasn't spread around the world quite as much as as those Wimbledon images were. And um, and look, I, I, he didn't do himself that many favours. He, he 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 was he was quite happy to admit he didn't want to take any part in the fame game of the sport. And he, he really wasn't him, you know. So he didn't try that hard, and and that's part of the problem. But yeah, I think things could have been different if he'd have won his titles we talked a bit about this with regard to pat cash didn't we and he could have been remembered slightly differently i think if he'd have won them at different times and at least when he won that u.s open and he signed off with a title that and he beat agassi's old rival on that stage that that's a moment that stays in many people's memories mm. Mm. that was a that was a a am i right in saying that was the catalyst for another fight with university friend Alex, that uh, Davis Cup win, David. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Are, you sh- are you sure you're friends? <laughs> We're very great, A mates. Pete Sampras hater. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't stand it. <laughs> but uh, but it, was, it was good good fun pub 
conversation i have to say uh, and he gave as good as he got uh, by the way i while we were looking through the archive for all this footage i found i came across a an exhibition match played between pete sampras and andre agassi in 2016 so oh, you really deep dived on youtube David. <laughs> yeah just four years ago and it's and at the end of it agassi loses and can't move and at the end of it he's saying and he can't sort of twist to and fro and he tells the crowd it's in monterey uh in mexico and he at the end he he takes the mic and he says i i came here with with a herniated disc in my back um but i promised that i would play and i'm playing but i want you all to know that this is the last time i will ever compete on a tennis court in any in any context um and i wanted and i'm glad it was against this man pete sampras and they've had some difficult moments over the years those two they haven't always got along haven't always understood each other but as rivals they really appreciated each other i know pete was proud his final match of his career was against andre agassi his old rival and obviously this is a very different situation and agassi looks just so inhibited physically can't even move in this exhibition he's just waddling around the court and hitting the ball trying to play but and he and he just says i'm going to leave all my rackets here and he just walks around the court and gives rackets to people on the front row kids on the front row and just walks oh. off into the sunset and oh said he'll God. never play again um so very uh, very emotional moment um and but those two belong together really i think in their careers oh goodness me well the 28th of January 2021 will go down as the day that Pete Sampras made me cry. <laughs> or, or the day that David Law made me cry about Pete Sampras. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a moment that, that yeah, I, in 20, 30 years, I think when I look back on the career of, of Pete Sampras and look back on a lifetime of watching tennis, that will stick out for me. Mm. I will check back in with uh, the Whitaker parents to see whether this has changed their retrospective perception of Pete Sampras. Matt, could you do the same? Yes, of course. And we'll <laughs> we'll consider that a uh, a definitive sample of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the tennis tennis podcast parents, because <laughs> um, David, you're you're not an impartial observer. I tell you, I'd, I'd quite like to hear from our listeners you know, about Mm. this, about, I mean, there will be many that remember these times and remember that match and remember his era. There'll be many that may have just heard about him from people they know or their parents, like like Mm. yourself, Matt. And I'd really be curious to know ahead of this podcast what your view was and and what it is now, really. Mm. Yeah. Answers on a postcard. Yeah. I just have this feeling that nuance doesn't, travel particularly well Mm. you know people get put in boxes and the overarching narrative is what gets remembered and i i I do still think for for the lay sports fan the average tennis fan that this this moment doesn't quite have the cut through that it that it really should all it would take is anyone to watch it to Mm. to really feel differently i think or to listen to david law and or mary carillo talking about it good point so if this if this doesn't do it for you folks you're probably not a pete sampras fan (laughs) and you're never going to be um 
but I, 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 you know, I, I did see a lot of Pete Sampras's career live. I, I, I did witness the, the latter stages of it as a tennis fan, and yet still I feel uh, really enriched in my understanding of him mm. by um, by learning more about this this chapter in his career. So thank you, David. Thank you to the nineties for, for all that all that you've given us. Um, we still have one more Australian Open relived episode to come, and we're all very, 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 very excited about it, aren't we? Because tomorrow we get to get into the DeLorean and go back to twenty seventeen, um, which, despite being only four years ago, is is a time when that I am so nostalgic about. It might be the shortest passage of time between event happening and intense nostalgia. Mm. What was that dinosaur film called? The Land That oh, Time Forgot. No, David, <laughs> stop what? getting Bond wrong. It's the land before time. Stop getting what wrong? It's a partridge quote. <laughs> it's the land before time and... Oh my gosh! There's a, don't make me cry again. That is one of the sad. There's there's a thing that happens in that film. I'm actually just tearing up thinking about it. Oh my goodness! We're talking about different films. The Land Before Time. No, Land That Time Forgot. Oh, <laughs> oh there is another dinosaur because there's a dinosaur film called The Land Before Time. About the orphan. The Land That Time Forgot is 1974, Catherine. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's that about? I'm talking about the I'm talking about the cartoon film, the land the cartoon yeah, dinosaur film, The Land Before Time. <laughs> oh. I'm talking about something that I used to watch at my grandparents when I was about seven. Uh, a nineteen seventy four right. picture with dinosaurs eating people. Oh, this is a really different film. <laughs> Oh, I... I <laughs> the, <laughs> Good luck with this edit, Matt. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, tomorrow... <laughs> tomorrow it's 2017. Uh, no one's going to be forgetting it in a hurry and we'll be here to remind you all about it in our final Australian Open Relived pod. It'll be our final pod uh, with Cookie, the lovely 13-year-old Labrador as our weekly mascot. Hello to Cookie. Hello to Zeus, to Rogue, to Scousel Mousel. Hello to Chris Albert Lee, our executive producer and quote, top bloke. And hello also to our shout outs. Yes, to Susan Mullen. Thank you, Susan. Hello, Susan. Like, desperately seeking... <laughs> good to have your name in a in a film title not everyone can say that no but susan can uh josh aberdeen oh no way mm. oh what a name that is eh yeah i wonder if you do you support aberdeen football club josh is what i want to know get in touch do you eat at the aberdeen angus steakhouse i mean not at the moment obviously <laughs> but Lots of questions. Mm. Hello, Josh. And support. finally, Annie Gabbert. Also hey. name in a film mm. title. Yeah. yeah. I mean, probably most names are covered by some film or other. But anyway, not not many of them are, are covered in a sort of single 
I don't think any of ours name, are. Are they? Just Annie. Thank you, Annie. I suppose David and Goliath. Is that a film? Is there a David and Goliath film? Of course there is. It must be. I don't think Catherine's in any film titles. Oh, I mean, come on. Surely it is. I don't think so. I don't think Matt is either. Also answers on a postcard about that. <laughs> Great. When she says postcard, We're she means Twitter. We're if not interactive <laughs> with our fans. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your support. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow with one more Australian Open Relived. We'll see you then. 